Well, today is Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to all the dads who are with us. And uh, we're beginning a little bit of a tradition here on Father's Day where I indulge myself briefly with a few dad jokes. And uh, if you're not familiar with what a dad joke is, it's, it's when, a, when a father figure says something brilliantly witty, <laughs> unmistakably hilarious, and rather than everyone erupting in laughter, you hear this like moaning sound. Okay, that's what, a, that's what a dad joke is. Now, if you're wondering where did the dads access this wealth of comedic material, well, we have this, we have this electronic resource that we all tap into. It, you know, it's a dada base. <laughs> See, that, that's what I'm talking about, okay? That's, that, that's what I'm talking about. So, I have this other dad friend. He is an agnostic he also uh, suffers from insomnia, and he's dyslexic. So he's an agnostic, dyslexic, insomniac. And he's telling me he's been spending, he's been staying up all night wondering whether or not there is a dog. And if you're out on the patio or in the backyard today, some of you are still just getting that. <laughs> but if you're out on the patio or in your backyard today and you're enjoying, you know, a delicious steak uh, for Father's Day at a restaurant or in your backyard, and if, if thunderclouds begin to roll in, just, just don't, don't worry. Don't worry. Stay outside because the chances of you being struck by lightning while eating a steak is medium rare. I, I really enjoy protein. I like to eat meat. I don't really like vegetables. I, I think if I had to be a vegetable, I would want to be a vegetable that's like really cool, but not like too cool. You know, really cool, but not too cool. Kind of like radish. Well, the end of, the end of 1 Corinthians is a little bit like a dad joke. You feel a tiny bit of a letdown, to be honest. You're, you're sort of expecting something, the setup comes, and then when the punchline arrives, when you get to the, to the actual conclusion of things, it's like, that, that was it? It's a little bit how 1 Corinthians ends, because chapter 15, oh my goodness, Stand firm in the gospel. Christ is risen from the dead. We're going to be risen from the dead. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, I hope to travel to Macedonia. It's like, Paul, why, why did you keep writing? I mean, it ended on such a high. I mean, talk about anticlimactic. But here's the truth, loved ones. Paul didn't stop writing, and the Holy Spirit has not stopped speaking. And even though the details at the end of 1 Corinthians seem a little bit mundane, somewhat trivial, don't seem immediately applicable to our lives, but because Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's still speaking to us. 
The title for today's message is The Magnificent Gospel and a Few Mundane Details. That not all of the Christian life is chapter 15. A lot of the Christian life is chapter 16. I mean, it's so encouraging to, to hear the, the, the testimonies of, of Nancy and Devon, and, and we praise God for that, and to see them go under the water as a symbol of their death with Christ and their cleansing from sin and their resurrection to new life, but guys, like after the service, there's going to be some hoses pulled out and a pump, and someone is going to drain the baptism tank. There's some mundane things that need to happen. Most of us are going to go down 10th line and try to turn left on our gentia. <laughs> the Christian life involves all of our life. And the passage that Dinesh read to us earlier t- talks about money, talks about relationships, mentions a bunch of names, uh, some plans, all of these things. This is part of the Christian life. The magnificent gospel in the mundane details. Paul gives 12 different commands in this chapter. He commands the church to do 12 different things with apostolic authority. I'm going to not give you a 12-point message this morning. I'm going to group these commands into sort of four categories. Here's, Here's the first one, our giving and the worship of God. How does our giving, which in some ways can seem mundane and, and just sort of a, a detail in, uh, in our church that, that, you know, we have a budget and we have a, we have a mortgage, there's staff to pay, there's programs to run, there's missionaries to support, and so giving can sometimes seem mundane. And you might have noticed, hey, we actually haven't collected the offering yet this morning. Well, that, we're actually going to collect it at the end of the service today just to sort of break us out of the routine of there's nothing in the Bible that says that you need to collect the offering before the sermon and have a special song in in between. And so Paul begins by talking to them about the collection for the saints. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... Now, for those of us who have been here for the long, the long ride throughout the book of Corinthians, you know that when Paul begins a paragraph with now concerning, he's referring to a letter that they sent to Paul. And so Paul had said, now concerning marriage, now concerning singleness, now concerning food sacrificed idols, he, now concerning spiritual gifts. He was answering all of these questions that they were sending his way. And they had a question about this collection for the saints. So Paul says, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul doesn't want to be going on a door-to-door fundraising tour when he arrives there in Corinth, and so he tells the church, no, collect it as a church. And he tells them to collect it on the first day. Now, the the first day is Sunday. And this was when Christians met, when the early church met. We are following a a 2,000-year tradition of meeting on the Lord's Day. 
We see this in Acts chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 7, when Paul preached long, long past midnight. I don't plan to do that uh, this morning or this afternoon, but, but Paul preached long. Remember, Eutychus fell out the window because the service, that, that hap- it said that that happened on the first day. When John had this beautiful vision of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says that that was on the Lord's day. Jesus rose on a Sunday. That's why we meet together. Every day is like, a, like an Easter Sunday. Every day is a resurrection Sunday. So he says on the first day of every week, when you gather to worship, each of you is to put something aside. And store it up as he may prosper. These are some important New Testament principles for giving. First off, it's supposed to, giving for New Testament Christians is supposed to happen regularly. It's to be run regularly on the first day of the week. Furthermore, giving is supposed to be practiced universally. It says each of you. The assumption is that all of the believers are to contribute to this offering. And then lastly, it is to be, to be carried out proportionally. Each one is to give as he may prosper. And we see this in the Old Testament with the tithe, which means 10%, whether you were rich or whether you were poor. The, the idea was that, that you were to give 10% of your income so that it was the same for everyone, the same percentage, but not the same per- amount. It was proportional. And truth be told, there are families in our church who would struggle to, to, to get to a ceiling of, of 10%. That There are other families in our church where 10% is really just a floor and they could live quite comfortably with giving away a larger percentage of their income. Giving is supposed to happen as each person prospers. It's to be given proportionally, but we all share the load. We all have a responsibility to give. If you take this passage, 1 Corinthians 16, and then round it out with some other passages uh, in the New Testament, we get sort of a fully orbed uh, description of what principles should guide our giving. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, God loves a joyful giver. We're supposed to give as we've decided in our heart and give joyfully because God loves a joyful giver because God himself is a joyful giver. To give generously as it's described in 2 Corinthians 8. Two to three, and sacrificially, that widow who gave all that she had, the, 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 the small copper coin. So this is how, these are the principles that were given in the New Testament to govern our giving. It's supposed to be part of the worship of God. He says in verse three, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry the gift. Giving in the church is supposed to be carried out with the utmost transparency and integrity. It's not, oh, where'd you put the offering this week? No, you're supposed to store it up. It's supposed to be secure. And the people who are handling it need to be accredited. They need to be tested. You gotta do some background checks to make sure that these are the right kind of people who will be managing the finances. And where are they carrying it? They're carrying it to Jerusalem. This was a special offering, and we're taking the principles of this offering, applying it to our own church context, but this was a special offering because of a special crisis that was happening in the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem was facing a challenge on two fronts. The first one we see in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, when, uh, when, when the first martyrdom took place, it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution 
against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the church of Jerusalem was struggling financially because everybody left. <laughs> because of the persecution that they were experiencing, people started moving out of the city. And so their numbers were way down. Remember, there were thousands of people there in Acts chapter 2 who were meeting together in the temple and devoting themselves to prayer. But then persecution came and they spread. God used that. That was part of God's plan to spread the gospel. But the sort of mother, mothership church there in Jerusalem was really struggling. But compounded on top of that, we're told in Acts chapter 11, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then Luke places it in its historical context. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, proportionally, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. So there was great persecution and there was a great famine. The famine was experienced all over the world, but it specifically impacted the believers who were there in Jerusalem. And so that's what they were giving towards. And so, loved ones, how do you think about giving? Is your giving happening regularly? And are you giving at all? Because it's supposed to be universal. Are you giving proportionate to your income? Are you giving joyfully? Are you giving sacrificially? These are questions that we need to be asking ourselves. And are we giving out of a heart of worship? Is it part of, of how we worship? Because every time we collect the offering, we help put to death the idolatry of greed that runs so rampant in our culture. Every time that we give to the Lord, we say, no, Jesus is my king. Money is not my master. So he begins by talking to them about the collection. He, and, and for us, we need to think about our giving and how it relates to the worship of God. Secondly, Paul talks about his travel plans. This leads us to our second section, our plans and the sovereignty of God. Our plans and the sovereignty of God. Do you ever make plans and you have the whole day um, uh, laid out and then it, it involves a lot of outdoor activities and then the storm clouds roll in and you can't do it? Or you make plans that necessitate you having a working vehicle that you can operate from travel to, to one place uh, to the next, and then all of a sudden your car, and then your plans are no longer plans. Do you ever have plans where you're relying on one person to come through in some certain way, and so once they do their part, then you can do your part, and your whole plan is dependent on this other person coming through, and then that person doesn't come through? You know that feeling? You know that feeling? You know what I'm talking about? Paul felt like that sometimes. He says in verse 5, I, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. That's his plan. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So Paul's plan, he wanted to go to Macedonia first. 
That's where churches like the church at Thessalonica, the church at Philippi, you know, the book of First and Second Thessalonians, the book of Philippians, that's up in Macedonia. And then he wanted to head south down into Achaia. That's sort of the province of the region where Corinth was. And so that was Paul's plan. Macedonia, then Achaia. But notice what he says. He says, I, I don't just want to see you in passing. He says, my plan is to spend a, a long period of time with you. Sometimes we read the book of Acts and we think that Paul just moved from one place to the next place. You know, it only took like three seconds to, to read the paragraph. And so we assume that Paul was just in one place and then quickly in another place. But in Acts 18, when Paul planted the church at Corinth, he was there for at least 18 months. Because there was a point where he thought he was going to leave. And then God appeared to him and says, no, stay. And it says he stayed for another 18 months. Paul was engaged in long-term ministry. He didn't just move from place to place. Sometimes we think that, you know, the, most, the people who are most powerfully used for the gospel are those who fill stadiums or fill churches or concert halls, and, and they just go from one place to the other. They, they, they hop off the plane. They, they show up at some event for 90 minutes. They give some powerful message. They get back on another plane and go somewhere else. We think that's where the power is. The New Testament doesn't lay that out as a model. The model is to stay in a place. Uh, Lindsay and I and, and, and uh, uh, Pastor Chris and Lisa, Jameson and Taylor, Deborah and Dave. I mean, our, our, we, we've been here for like 12, 13 years now in, in this area wanting to, to, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, engage in long-term. Even though Paul had a quote-unquote itinerant ministry where he was going from place to place, he stayed there a really long time. You, you can impress someone in 90 minutes, but you can't really influence their life. So if you want to live a life of impressing people, yeah, you can just come and go. Join this church, join another church, go here, go there. But if you really want to influence people, you got to be committed to the long haul. Paul says, I, I want to spend some, I don't just want to see you in passing. I want to spend some time with you. But notice what he says there at the end of verse 7. This is really important. If the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. Paul had his plan but he knew that his plans were subordinate to God's master plan. Now, some of us love to plan, and God bless you, continue to do that, but just always make sure, just even if you need to write it on your to-do list, just in the bottom at the back, in the brackets, if the Lord permits. Because we can have all the plans that we want, but if we love our plans too much, sometimes we, we're unprepared for when God has another plan. So we need to think the way Paul thought about his plans and the sovereignty of God. There's a whole other group of us who we don't plan at all. And we somehow consider ourselves spiritual because we don't come up with any plans. We think, oh, the Spirit's just going to lead us. Well, would you agree that Paul was a Spirit-led Christian? Because Paul made plans. It's not unspiritual to have a plan, to have a to-do list. We just got to make sure that we plan in pencil and know what the Lord may or may not permit. Paul says in verse 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me. The sovereignty of God had opened a door for Paul 
And Paul is walking through the door and he's seeing fruitfulness and effective work happening because God opened the door. Paul did not open the door. Sometimes churches and individuals force the door open. We get out a battering ram. We try crawling in through the window, trying to force our way in to doing the Lord's work rather than trusting that God will open the door. For many of us, and really just statistically speaking, when we think about how many people are actively engaged in small group, actively engaged in serving in our church on a regular basis, for many of us, a door has been opened for the Lord, and we're just not walking through it. And let this be your pastoral push to say, get involved. Get into Hope Kids. Get into a small group. Start serving in youth or in young adults or on the, on the welcome. There is a, a wide open door for ministry. So walk through it. Paul walked through the door that God opened. He didn't, he didn't force it open. God opened it up. But look at what he says next. He says, he says, a door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. If you walk through a door that you think God is opening, and all of a sudden you get all of this opposition, and you start getting attacked, wouldn't, you, know, you know what I would think? I would think I went through the wrong door. I would think I chose door number one, I should have chose door number two, sort of like a game show. And no, but Paul says, no, I went through the right door. You see, we live in, in such this, this comfortable culture of Christianity in North America that we can't even begin to fathom that gospel opportunity and gospel opposition can coexist. All throughout the book of Acts, you see gospel opportunity and right hand in hand with it comes gospel opposition. And so loved ones, you might not be walking through the door right now in your neighborhood or at work or in your school because all you see is hostility to Christianity because all you see is opposition. And you think, well, that, that, that can't be an open door. Listen, more times than not, opposition is a sign that the door is open for an opportunity. And all you need to do is to trust God, be humble, and speak truth in love. And you see what happens in those moments. Paul's, Paul's describing his time in Ephesus. Paul planted the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 19, he goes to Ephesus. And there is, there's this opportunity. There's this, this public space, the Hall of Tyrannus. And he, he preaches there He's got a regular preaching ministry. People are learning. People are coming to Christ. But then, so that's the opportunity, but then comes the opposition. In Ephesus, they had this big temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis. And uh, they had these little souvenirs. If you went to worship the false god there, you got a little souvenir. You know, like I went to Ephesus and all I got was this t-shirt. And uh, they, they had these little silver statues. So there's this guy named uh, Demetrius and he made the statues. Now, he didn't really necessarily even believe in Diana. He was just concerned that less people were believing in Diana, so the less people were buying the statue, and the reason was because of Paul and this Jesus stuff. 
And so he starts this big riot. So there was an opportunity and there was opposition. Paul didn't run back through the door. He described in chapter 15 of verse 32 in, in 1 Corinthians, he said, I was, I was attacked by wild animals in Ephesus. Most likely describing this moment, Paul did not step back or step down. He saw that opportunity and opposition go hand in hand. So we need to rethink our plans. And, and we, need, we need to take a look at what door has God opened for ministry here at Hope Church? What, and believe me, there's all kinds of opportunities here at Hope Church. And what door of opportunity has God opened up in my family and in my neighborhood, in my workplace, and in my school. And don't be afraid of the opposition. In a strange way, be encouraged by it. Our plans and the sovereignty of God. Thirdly, our relationships and the family of God. Our relationships and the family of God. In this next section, this longer section, verses 12 all the way down to verse 20, Paul uses the word brothers three times. The, the idea that, that we're brothers and sisters, that today's Father's Day, God is our Father, and because of that, we are all brothers and sisters. This is how we relate to one another. Not only that, he uses seven personal names. He makes reference to seven key friendships, partnerships that Paul has. The first one there is Timothy in verse 10. Paul wrote a couple of letters in the New Testament to Timothy, first and second Timothy. Timothy is there with Paul in the book of Acts. Timothy is mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians as well. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord. Timothy was like Paul's protege. Paul kept referring to Timothy as, as his son, as his child in the faith. Now, Timothy and Paul seemed to be very different people. Paul was so bold and courageous. Timothy was the kind of guy who was like, I'm not going through that door. And so Paul is trying to look out for this young guy and say, listen, when he gets there, I've given him some work to do in your church, so just put him at ease. Just welcome him. And I wonder what kind of a job we're doing to put people at ease when they come to our church for the first time. Maybe they're from a different religious or cultural background. Well, what do we do to put them at ease? I, believe me, just going and talking to only the people that you know, that's not helping. One of the ways that we can put newcomers at ease is to be on the lookout for them and to try to welcome them and encourage them and show them the love of Christ. Paul wanted Timothy to be put at ease, and then he said, for he's doing the work of the Lord, as I am. Verse 11, so let no one despise him. Despise him? To think less of him? To put him down? To trample over him? Why would that be? Well, Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise you, that same word, let no one despise you because of your youth. Timothy was young. And, and, I guess people were putting him down or not listening to him because of his youth. But Paul said, no, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. So that might have been part of it. I, I think the real reason was because Timothy was associated with Paul. Remember how this church in chapter 2 and chapter 3, chapter 4, they kept saying stuff like, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Remember that? 
So there was a pro-Paul group and a pro-Apollos group. And the pro-Apollos group was kind of anti-Paul. And so Paul's concerned. He's sending Timothy, timid Timothy, into this divided church. And they know that Timothy is associated with Paul. And he's afraid that people are going to jump all over him. And so Paul says, hey, just keep your eye out on him. Make sure he doesn't get cornered by one of the other groups and torn up limb from limb, figuratively speaking, I hope. So he says, help him on his way in peace, in verse 11, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. And he says, or speaking about a divided church, here's one of the people that the church was divided over. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Now remember, when we see that phrase, now concerning, Paul's referring to something that they wrote to him about. So here's Paul. You've got to think he's feeling a tiny bit insecure. The church is being divided. You've got some people that support Paul, other people that support Peter, Cephas, other people support Apollos. And they write a letter. And in the letter, they say, hey, when's Apollos coming? We really want Apollos to come. And how would that make Paul feel? Slightly insecure. But this is what they wrote to him about. So Paul says, now concerning Apollos, now what would you do in that situation? If you're sort of in this power struggle within the church, and some people are turning against you and turning towards this other person, would you be really excited about that person going to the church without you? Paul's like, oh yeah, I forgot to mention to Apollos that you wanted him to come. No, that's not what Paul did. He shows great in in integrity and humility and confidence in the Lord here. He says, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Paul just asked Apollos. The church was divided over Paul and Apollos, but Paul and Apollos weren't divided themselves. Paul urged Apollos, Apollos, you're gifted. You're being used by the Lord. You should go and help the church at Corinth. This isn't about you and me. This is about Jesus. Of course go. I would never hold you back from going. But it says in verse 12, it was not at all his will. That could be Apollos' will. He just didn't want to go or couldn't go. There's a footnote in our ESV Bible saying that the, the Greek there could just as easily be when it says his, that could be a capital H, like it wasn't God's will. Maybe Apollos wanted to go, but again, we've got plans, and then there's the sovereignty of God. So it says he'll come when he has the opportunity Then in verses 13 and 14, he gives five commands. I mentioned that there's a lot of commands. Almost half of them are in these two verses. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. If you'd allowed me, I'm just going to come back to those verses in a few minutes. Let's stick with the relationship theme. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. He mentions this guy, Stephanus. Paul said that he baptized this guy in chapter 1, verse 16. That he was among the first converts. He says that this guy, he's clearly a leader in the church. He's probably the one who delivered the letter to Paul. And Paul says that this guy is devoted to the service of the saints. That's what a leader is supposed to be. A leader is supposed to serve the people of God. The leader's mindset is supposed to be, how can I serve? 
That's what a leader is supposed to do. What about the people that the leader is leading? Look at what he says to them, verse 16. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. The church is supposed to be in submission or subjection to the leader. But the leader is supposed to be serving the church. And so, the way church leadership dynamics should work is that the leaders and the church should just be continually going lower and lower and lower in a posture of humility. The church submits, the leaders serve. Some of us think that, well, if if I submit to the elders or if I submit to the church leaders, then they're just going to get a a big head and they're going to start to rule and, and domineer over people, but that's not what leaders are supposed to do. Don't submit to leaders like that. Submit to leaders who are committed to the service of the saints. Leaders serve, the church submits, and leaders serve, and the church submits, and humility fuels that whole cycle. He mentions a couple other guys in verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, and these were probably his traveling partners, Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. Stephanus means crowned. A Fortunatus means blessed. You can hear the word fortune in there. And Achaicus, Achaia was the province they were from. So his name is kind of like, hello, my name is Ontario. Uh, <laughs> I guess his parents just really liked where they were from. He says that, that they have made up for your absence in verse 17. You see, they didn't have Zoom or Google Meet back then. So just to have a couple of visitors from Corinth come and spend some time with them, reminded them of all the good times and how's this person doing or how's that person doing. And so it, it was so encouraging. Look at verse 18. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. They refreshed my spirit. Now imagine uh, this afternoon uh, you get out and and, uh, maybe you decide to to cut the lawn for your dad or for your husband and and, because it's Father's Day. You tell them, just go put your feet up and I'm going to cut the grass and Imagine that the temperature just gets really hot and it's dusty and you're, you're just exhausted. And uh, imagine if, you're, if your dad or your husband has been sitting on the couch all of this time. You've just come in out of the heat and the sweat. Imagine if they handed you a, a delicious cup of ice cold f- iced coffee. And just imagine how good that would taste. And if you hate coffee, imagine iced tea or something like that. But let me commend to you iced coffee. It's really good. Now imagine the exact same situation. You've been working hard and it's dusty and sweaty and hot. And then your dad or your husband hands you the pickle jar with no pickles. And it's just whatever you call it, the pickle juice. Like, one is refreshing. It's exactly what you need. For that particular moment, there's no drink that you would rather have. And then the other is like, what on earth? When you talk to people, are you pickle juice or are you iced coffee? Do you refresh people? 
Or do you drain whatever nutrients they seem to have left? Loved ones, our aim needs to be that we would bless and refresh. Paul says, I rejoiced when these people came because they refreshed me. Are we doing that for one another? Is that is what is happening in the foyer? Is that is what's happening in our small groups? Is that, is, is, is that what's happening in our Hope Kids ministry? That we are being a refreshment that causes other people to rejoice. Loved ones, that needs to be our aim. Paul, another command, verse 18, give recognition to such people. Verse 19, the churches of Asia, Paul's in Ephesus, Asia is the province. The church of Asia, send your greetings. Priscilla and, and, sorry, Aquila and Prisca send together with their church and their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. The churches in general, this one specific church wants to greet you. All the brothers send you greetings. They're part of this global network of churches. All of these names, all of these partnerships, they're all in this together. And then he says at the end of verse 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. I mean, even before COVID, like, that's not happening. I had a couple of brothers kiss me after church uh, in, the, in the 9 o'clock service just to bug me. But it's really, it's really not happening, right? Like, we don't kiss one another. It's commanded like five or six times in the New Testament to kiss one another. Why don't we kiss one another? Well, it's the same reason why women don't cover their heads uh, in church unless they want to. Because a head covering was a cultural symbol of marriage and authority and submission at that time. It's not a cultural symbol anymore, and so we don't practice that. In the same way, kissing one another was a, a sign of intimacy, of brotherhood or sisterhood. Remember, Judas kissed Jesus. That's why it was such a betrayal, because it was a symbol of I'm for you, I'm with you, I love you, I accept you, and he betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. Culturally... That was how it was done. Now, our culture is different. But again, we have to find, what is our holy kiss? What can we do? What can you do after the service to make sure that people feel welcome, that we're a part of the family? Whatever that is, we got to do that. We all come from a lot of different cultures, so that's going to mean different things. It might mean that we might... It might be awkward from time to time because we're trying to show love to our brother or sister, but our brother or sister's from a different culture. We gotta learn from one another, but we gotta find out what we can do on the lookout. Yes, there's all these greetings. Notice Paul's saying all of this stuff about all these churches overseas here in Asia, and, and the church, he mentioned the church at Galatia, the churches in Macedonia, all these different people who aren't there in the church, they all send you greetings, but Paul says, by the way, don't look past the people right in front of you. Make sure that you're greeting the people who are right in front of you. Don't think about who's not here. Think about who is and delight to welcome them. So this, this final chapter is such a model of healthy partnerships and relationships between churches and between individuals, our relationships in the family of God. And then thirdly, our maturity and the love of God, our maturity and the love of God. 
Now, up until this point, a guy named Sosthenes, he's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1, he's the one that's been writing everything that Paul is dictating to him. He's like the, he's like the secretary. But now Paul grabs the pen, yoink, and he writes the conclusion himself. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul mentions that there were forgeries that were going around, people who were claiming to write on behalf of, claiming to be Paul and saying all this crazy stuff about the end times. And Paul's like, that's not me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write at the end now in my own handwriting so that you know that it's me. Then he says in verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. He says, listen, unless you love the Lord, it doesn't matter. He says, unless you love the Lord, it doesn't matter how mature you think you are. Think about the church at Corinth. Think about all the things we've covered over the last 16 chapters. The church at Corinth thought the sign of spiritual maturity was if you were eloquent and could speak with the philosophers and the wisdom of this world. Paul says, that's not maturity. Our spiritual maturity is having spiritual power and strength such that you could go into an idol temple and eat idol food and say, this is meaningless because Jesus is Lord. Paul says, that's not spiritual maturity. The church at Corinth thought, no, the spiritual maturity is, is, is practicing spiritual gifts like tongues and the supernatural gifts. And Paul says, that's not, that's not maturity at all. What did he say to each of those groups? He said to each of them, what you're missing is love. Love is the telltale sign of maturity. Because, listen, we can't follow Jesus unless we follow in the way of love. Jesus said the first commandment, Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, so this is the great and first commandment. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience to all of Jesus' commands flows from loving him. But Paul says, listen, if, if you don't have love for the Lord, you're under a curse. You're, you're still under judgment. It doesn't matter how wise you think you are or how spiritually strong you think you are or what spiritual gifts you think you have. The key is love. Now go back with me to verse 13 and 14. Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. He tells them to be watchful. This is a command, this is one of the most common commands in all of the New Testament. Jesus told all of these parables about virgins with oil, about servants who were uh, working in the field or weren't ready for their master to come home. And Jesus sums up all of these parables in Matthew 25, talking about the end times. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So we're supposed to be watchful for the return of Christ. We're also supposed to be watchful, not just for the future return of Christ, but the present attacks of the enemy. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. And how do we practice this watchfulness? Watchfulness for the return of Christ. Watchfulness against the attacks of the enemy by continuing steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, Colossians 4.2. What did Jesus tell the disciples in the, in the, disciple, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Watch and pray. That the command is still the same. There's temptations all around. And prayer is what we're called to do. So we're supposed to be watchful. Back to 
to uh, chapter 16, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. It sounds like sort of a recruitment advertisement for the Marines or something, right? Act like men, be strong, stand firm, be watchful, never quit, never give up. And then what he says in verse 14, it's quite surprising. He says, let all that you do be done in love. Yeah, be watchful, but be watchful in love. Yeah, be strong, but be strong in love. Act like men. Now, this is not, not comparing masculinity to femininity. He, he, he's, he's, he's comparing maturity with immaturity. It's act like, act like a grown-up, not just act like men. Act like a grown woman. Act like a grown man. Don't be immature. How can you be mature? The more mature you are, the more loving you will be. That's what Paul has been saying all throughout this letter. In chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1, talking about knowledge and the wisdom about food sacrifice to idols and being so eloquent, Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. About spiritual gifts and, and all the division that they were causing over tongues and prophecy, Paul says, pursue love. That's the first thing. And secondly, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And then he went into that amazing chapter in chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. And then he says, love is patient and kind. And that beautiful description of what love is. And then he says, love never ends. And in that same chapter, in chapter 13, he says something interesting. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. How do you become a man? How do you act like a man or like a woman? How do you put aside childish ways? You learn how to love. Because love is the telltale sign of maturity. So he does say act like men. He does say grow up. And you do have to be strong, and you do have to be firm, and you do have to kick the guy out of the church who's guilty of sexual immorality, like he said in chapter 5. And you do have to take a hard stance on food sacrificed to idols, like he said in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. You, you do have to take these hard stands. You do have to be strong, but you have to be strong in a way that is loving. Because all that you do must be done in love. Going back now to verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. This is uh, the only non-Greek words in the letter. This is Aramaic. Maranatha. Maranatha means our Lord, come. He says, the grace of the Lord be with you. My love be with you. This is the only time Paul gives a personal affirmation of his love at the end of a letter, probably because he was so hard on the Corinthians, because <laughs> there was so much that needed to be corrected. But he closes by saying, my love be with you all. And who are the people that he's writing to? Who are the all? All in Christ Jesus. Amen. Are you in Christ Jesus? Because if you're in Christ Jesus, giving becomes a very small thing in light of what Jesus has given for us. And our plans become a very small thing when we understand Christ's ultimate plan for us to be conformed into his image. And our relationships change when we start to view how we treat and love other people in light of the way that Jesus has treated and loved us. And obviously, our pursuit of maturity changes when we understand the depth with which 
The Son loves us as we are in him, in Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this journey through this book which you inspired Paul to write. We thank you that the Spirit has spoken and continues to speak. And God, we pray that you would draw us nearer to you and nearer to one another so that in our giving and in our relationships and in our plans, Lord, that we would do all that we do in love. Lord, I pray that it would be said about the people of Hope Church that, that that's, not a, that's not a perfect church by, by any means, but that is a church that loves God and that is a church that loves one another and that loves the lost. May all that we do be done in love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.